You've probably experienced this before when just one fact might change your mind about a certain issue. Been, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the uh, issue of Crimea lately and what's going on there with the Russians overtaking that country. But I've sort of struggled a little bit with that issue. We know historically that Crimea actually had been a part of Russia for a long time. That a great percentage of the people there speak the Russian language and not the Ukrainian language. I've actually traveled in eastern Ukraine and it was very quick you had learned that many of those people, if not a majority, do feel more connected to Russia than to the Ukraine. And so I was sort of struggling with that until I was reading the newspaper the other day and I saw that in 1991, when the Soviet Union had fallen apart, that Ukraine was full of nuclear missiles and that... Russia and America and all of us came to them and said, if you will give up your missiles, then we will promise you secure borders. And Russia signed off on that, and we signed off on that, and Ukraine signed off on that, and they gave up all their nuclear weapons. That changed my view. Just that one fact changed my view of what was going on. And this morning, what I want to share with you is three scriptures that began to change me theologically. That when I saw these scriptures, it began to confront some of the things I'd been brought up with. I want you to look at them with me this morning because I think they could change some things about your thinking. Matthew chapter 21, a man comes to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers in a different way than I would have answered years ago. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. What are you saying there, Jesus? There are first and greater commandments. And then in Matthew chapter 23, here's another theological changer. Woe to you, teacher of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected, slow down with me here, the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And then I saw 1 Corinthians 15, and this really blew my mind. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul writes, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. Now, slow down with me. Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Did you notice some key words there? There are some commandments that are greater than other commandments. There are some teachings that are more important than other teachings. And Paul says, let me tell you guys about the things that are of first importance. You see, Jesus didn't say, don't ask me what the top commandment is because they're all equal. He says there are two that are above the other. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they have been so uptight about so many little things that they've neglected the big things. And then Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says, guys, let me remind you what's really big time important, what's of first importance. Obviously, there are some things of secondary importance. Here they are. 
So if you're taking notes, write down these principles that come from this. Number one, some beliefs are more important than others. Some beliefs are more important than others. Now let me show you two models. Model number one, and here's the model I grew up with, all right? All beliefs are on the same level, okay? Every theological belief and doctrine ends up being on the same level of importance. So whether we were talking about the resurrection of Jesus, or whether Jesus was divine or not, or whether we were talking about whether you should clap in church, or whether you could dance at your prom, or whether you can sing with the piano, it all ended up on the same exact level. Anybody, anybody else experience that? It was all, everything was the same. I had an elder tell me one time, you could be right about a hundred theological matters and wrong about one and you'd go straight to hell. That's that thinking. Everything's at the same level of importance. That's when I saw these verses, they gave me some hope. Because I think the Bible presents a different model. Here's model number two. Yes, there are some important big deal issues. There are some things you do need to agree on. There are some things that are absolutes that are non-negotiable. But if there are matters of first importance, there's also a second list of matters of secondary importance. They're not as important as the others. You see, the problem with the first model, number one, is it leads to nothing but division. If everything is a salvation issue and you and I come to a disagreement about that, we have no choice, if we're honest, but to split and go start another church. But if the second model is true, and I believe the scriptures prove that, then there is room for unity. So here's the second point, the second principle. Some beliefs are secondary, and obviously they should be treated that way. The Apostle Paul talks in Romans chapter 14 and 15 about what he calls disputable matters. The early church had their debates just like we do. And Paul says, you know what I'd like you to do with all these things? Will you just keep those at home? Don't come split the church about your view of this. Leave it alone. That's today. There are secondary things. It doesn't mean they should never be discussed. It doesn't mean they have no no importance. But are we going to split the church over our view of the second coming, whether you're post-millennial, pre-millennial, amillennial? Or can we say, you know what, those are things we'll just keep growing on. Those are things we'll just keep searching about. Those are things we'll help each other on. They are secondary. And number three, the, more, the most important beliefs and practices center around the gospel story of the death, burial, and resurrection. This is really key for you to understand this message. The most important beliefs and practices center around the gospel story of the death, burial, and resurrection. Paul says, these are the things of first importance. He's talking to a church that's split in every kind of direction. Remember the things of first importance. Because the gospel, Paul defines, is that incredible story of God doing for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. And, And the more I read the New Testament, the more I see, guys, everything centers around that story. Everything centers around what Jesus did for us. And the big time issues center around that story. Paul says, I'm okay with you if you want to observe a special Jewish day, and I'm okay if you don't. I'm okay if you want to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I'm okay if you don't. I'm okay if you want to be a vegetarian. But don't you dare fool with the death, burial, and resurrection. You start playing with the gospel and Paul's going to be fighting mad because that's big time. 
Well, let's start getting practical here. I want to talk about two practices, what I call two big-time important practices that center around the death, burial, and resurrection. Number one is baptism, and number two is the Lord's Supper. You say, why are those things such big-time issues? Because they are tied directly to the gospel story of the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, today we call this short message series the sacraments. That's not a word that we traditionally have used much, but it's a great word. What is a sacrament? It's an outward and visible sign of an inward spiritual grace. Many people call it the sign and seal of the covenant. A sacrament is a physical act with spiritual power. You got that? And that's where baptism and the Lord's Supper come in. Webster's Dictionary would give you this definition, pretty, pretty right on. What is a sacrament? It's a Christian rite ordained by Christ and held to be, held to have divine, to be a divine means of grace. A Christian ordinance ordained by Christ, held to be a divine means of grace. So today we talk about what's commonly called the two Christian sacraments. Now in Catholic and Orthodox religions, they name six sacraments. Among Protestant churches, there's always been a choice to focus on the two sacraments that Jesus initiated, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they're very, very important. In churches of Christ, if you're not familiar with us, a lot of our roots go back to these two issues. We're a part of what's called the Restoration Movement, which was a back-to-the-Bible movement back in the late 17th, early 18th century, where people did look around and say, wow, look at all this religious division. Why don't we just go back to the Bible and just be Christians? In fact, they had a slogan. They said, we want to be Christians only. But let's do what they said. But not the only Christians. Now, some of you are familiar enough with this to know that we sort of dropped the last part of that slogan, and we started thinking that we were the only Christians, all right? But that's not how they started. In fact, the beginning of the movement of the two leaders, Alexander Campbell, who was still in Scotland, Thomas Campbell was in America, centered around exclusivity at the Lord's Supper table. Not knowing the Father and the Son were experiencing the same thing, in many Christian denominations, they practiced what was called closed communion. You could only partake of communion if you were part of their denomination. And both Alexander and Thomas rejected that, and that was the beginning of our movement. And then they began to study the idea of adult baptism, and things began to change. Now, let me say this, because I know in teaching just our new members class that about 50% of you guys come from a Church of Christ background, about 50% of you don't. That's one thing I love about Landmark. And, And you probably have noticed that many of us who grew up in this movement, we're sort of bad about beating ourselves up. Because we did misbehave, all right? We misbehaved badly. And it gave us a pretty bad reputation. But today what I want to say to you is let's make sure that in trying to correct maybe some of our abuses that we don't throw out the best parts of our movement. That sometimes we don't tell you guys, you know what, here's a part of our heritage and our movement that we really appreciate. And those are the things we're talking about today. If I could be real frank with you this morning, baptism and the Lord's Supper are two of the major reasons I stay in the Church of Christ. Despite the fact a lot of people would like to see me leave, all right? (laughs) That would make them happy, all right? 
because I think these are big deals. Now, there's an exciting movement in our country right now called the community church movement. And it it shares a lot of our ideals. They're independent churches that don't answer to hierarchical leadership. That's exactly the way we envision things to be. And they're really back to the Bible movements. And it's pretty exciting what's going on there. A lot of the things that we have embraced have been embraced by those movements. But what would scare me from some of those movements, you can't peg them all. And while I might not be able to be a part of that, why wouldn't, is because of baptism and the Lord's Supper. My friends, if my children come to me, and they have, and say, Dad, we're thinking about going to this church or this church. Okay, good. All right. Thrilled. Um, Dad, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I say, what do they believe about the big time deals? What do they believe about the divinity of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, of who Jesus is? First of all, it's the big time issues. You've got to be solid on that. Second is what do they practice around baptism and the Lord's Supper? I think that's important. I'm not going to make a big deal about everything I've ever believed, but those things I think are pretty big. And so we talk about those things. So, as we think about this, let's talk about these sacraments. Now, here's what I want to say here. If you're going to downgrade any teaching in the Bible, if you're going to minimize any practice in Scripture... Let's just be really, really straightforward right now. Why in the world would you minimize these two? Think about it. And, and, and that's really a lot of what's happened in the religious world. Now let me get real practical. If you're planning a church and you want the service to be really smooth and you want people to be in and out in an hour, you've never heard of that, I know, but you want people to be in and out of an hour in an hour, and you want plenty of time for preaching and plenty of time for worship, you're going to cut the Lord's Supper. It gets in the way. If the major focus of your service is to reach lost people, and you don't want this awkward moment where they're eating this little chip and drinking a little juice, you cut it. And guys, that's, that's frankly what's happened. But here's what I, I want to say today. Of all things to cut in our worship, why would you cut the thing that's obvious reading through the New Testament was the most important part of their worship? It's obvious. And I'm not trying to make some kind of legalistic argument here. I'm simply saying, if you're going to keep things, keep the things Jesus ordained. And today I know lots of you. I mean, the world is changing around us. Church changes. Listen to me. Change is inevitable. Everything changes. If you don't believe change is inevitable, go home today and look in the mirror. (laughs) You're changing. I'm changing. Things are going to change. And that's why I love this topic today. Because I believe there are some things that don't change. Some ancient practices that you can hold on to and say, you know what? They did it a thousand years ago. They did it 2,000 years ago. And we're going to do it a thousand years from now. These ancient sacraments. Okay, so let's talk today rather quickly about baptism. All right? Let's go to the passage I think that makes the most sense about the rite of baptism. Romans 6 verse 3. 
Paul says, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in his death, a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul's trying to explain to some Christians, you need to remember what happened when you were baptized. It was a really big deal, and it ought to be changing your behavior today because something significant happened there. But let me give you four words that you should associate with baptism this morning. First of all, the word sign. What is a sign? It is something that points to something else, all right? When Jesus did his miracles, they were signs. The big deal was not the miracle he performed, but that the sign, the miracle, pointed to him, okay? And guys, the big deal about baptism is not the water, it's not the act, it is what it points to. What Paul says is this is a sign that points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why it's so significant. And that answers a question commonly asked. Is baptism about faith or is it about works? Many people would charge us and say, you know, you're teaching a work-based salvation with baptism. And you know what? You can. If you simply teach baptism is, is, is a part of a checklist of things that if you get them right, you will save yourself. I got this one right, and I got this one right, and I got this one. And when I got baptized, I understood exactly what I was doing, and I did it exactly perfectly. And, and really what we were saying is I saved myself. And that's why many of us have been baptized over and over again. You know what? Because every time we learned something new, we thought we had to be rebaptized. Because our salvation was dependent on us getting it right. My friends, that is as opposite of the Bible's teaching about baptism as you can find. The Bible's teaching about baptism is as an act of faith that points not to you. The spotlight on baptism is not on you. The spotlight is on Jesus. And, and with baptism, is an act of faith saying, you know what? I could never save myself. Here's what I'll do. I'll throw myself on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You don't believe that. Listen to this passage we studied just a few weeks ago from the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him, here we go, through your faith in the working of God, here's the tie, who raised him from the dead. What's, what's Paul say there? Baptism is not a work where you try to justify yourself. It's an act of trust and faith where you say, I trust the resurrection of Jesus. That's what I trust. It's a sign. Number two, it's a symbol. It literally represents something else. It represents those things of first importance, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that answers a question commonly asked today is, is it sprinkling or is it immersion? And I would say if it's going to be symbolic, which it obviously is, help, let's make sure the symbol fits where it's being pointed and that's why you will notice here in our church that we practice baptism by immersion. Because it fits the picture. It fits the symbolism of the moment. You die. You're buried. You resurrect. That's even beyond that the word baptizo means to dip or plunge. So, it's immersion, I believe. Number three, we go back to this word we're talking about today. I think it's a sacrament. And here's the definition of sacrament. A means by which God gives grace. Other, other definitions, this is a place where divine life is dispensed. Now, we've got to be honest here. There is a physical component and a spiritual component at the same time. 
We can't stand here and say it's not symbolic. It is. Here's the question this, this one answers. Is it only symbolic or is it effective? You understand what I'm saying here? Now, some people teach, and I'm not trying to be critical here. I'm just being honest. The baptism is a neat idea. But once you've accepted Jesus in your heart and you've prayed the sinner's prayer, then here's what you need to do. Then after that, as one popular writer writes, now you're, you're right with God. You need to go find your church. You need to start reading your Bible. You need to start tithing. You need to be baptized. It belongs on that side of the list. It is simply something that's, that is symbolic. I do believe the Bible teaches it's symbolic. But the question here, is it only symbolic or does something actually significant happen there? Is it effective? Listen to this quotation from a brother who's been here at Landmark before, John Mark Hicks. Baptism is more important than you think, but not for the reasons you suppose. Many believe baptism is simply the sign of salvation already received. Others believe it's an indispensable command that legally divides those who are going to heaven from those going to hell. Baptism is really more important than either think. Listen closely. Baptism is a performative or effectual sign through which God works by his Holy Spirit to forgive, renew, sanctify, and transform. It is a symbol by which we participate in the reality that it symbolizes. We must not reduce it to a mere symbol or sign that only looks to the past without any present power or reality. Baptism is more than that. What's he saying? Oh, yeah, it's symbolic. But it's powerful. It's effective. When you took the Lord's Supper a few moments ago, do you believe that's only just some symbolism we go through? We'll talk about this next week. Or do you believe there's actually some power, some effectiveness there, that there's actually a communion with Christ that is unique in that moment? So it's important in that it's a, it's a great sacrament. And that brings me to one more word. And that's the word I would associate, which is salvation. And somebody said, well, I don't like that, buddy. I, I don't really want to associate baptism with salvation. That, that, that scares me. Well, let me just say this. I, I'm not the one who started that. Okay? If you're uncomfortable with the words baptism and salvation being mentioned together, which a lot of people are, then you're going to be uncomfortable with some scriptures in the Bible. Okay, listen to what Jesus said. Let's just let's let, let's let Jesus' words just, I'm not going to comment, I'm just going to read them. Mark 16, verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Well, then let's go to Peter, Acts chapter 2. First time the gospel story is ever told in front of people. The death, bell, and resurrection story is told. They want to know what in the world they can do to get right with God. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he says some things happen. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sounds pretty powerful to me. And then when Saul is coming to the Lord, and Ananias is teaching him, Ananias finally says to him, Acts twenty two sixteen. now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. That's the way you call on the name of the Lord. And then Peter gets even more blunt in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he's comparing the cleansing of the flood to the cleansing of baptism. And he said, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. It's not taking a bath. It's not the removal of the dirt from the body. But it is the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Here we go again, guys. Watch the tie. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see why it's so important? 
because it's so tied to the things of first importance, the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, this is really fascinating to me. Among the evangelical world, while it seems like some of us in the Church of Christ sort of want to back away and be embarrassed by baptism, in the evangelical world, there are many people who are embracing baptism. I want to show you a video clip of a very popular preacher today called Francis Chan. He preaches at a community church, popular writer, and I want you to hear what he says about baptism. Just watch this. Actually, a lot of my mindset changed a few years ago when some Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door, oddly enough. They, uh, they started talking theology. We started uh, getting in these different discussions. I started pointing different verses out to them. And then ultimately, at the end of it, I said, okay, you guys believe that Michael the Archangel is the same person as Jesus Christ himself? I go, but there is no way on earth you can look me in the eyes right now and tell me that you actually came before God one day and said, God, show me the truth. And then you read the Bible for yourself. And at the end of it, you came to the conclusion that, oh, I get it. Jesus and Michael, the archangel, are the same person. <laughs> There's no way you can tell me that. Someone fed that to you because you would never get that from reading the Bible. And so I just encourage them. I go, look, I, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I don't want to feed you something else. I'm just encouraging you. Would you just get alone with the Word of God, pray to God and say, God, show me the truth, and then read it and see what conclusions you would come to. And they, they walked away. It was actually a really good discussion because they walked away and going, you know what? I think I do need to do that. I think I will do that. And I don't know if they ever did, but after they left, I, I started thinking to myself, was I really fair to them? I mean, did I really do that? Did I really one day say, I really want to know the truth? So I, I sat down with the Word of God and began to study and came to these conclusions. Um, honestly, that's not how it happened for me. And a lot of things were fed to me as well. And so I've been on this journey of just thinking to myself, okay, if I were on an island and I just read this book over and over again, and let's say this is the only, this is the only influence I had, and had anyone preaching to me, I had no theology books, I was just on this island reading this thing over and over, what would I believe just from my readings and studies of this book? Would I come up with church the way we do it in America? Probably not. And I went through this journey of just trying to figure out my whole belief system and thinking through how much of it was fed to me and how much of it really came from the Bible itself. Think about it. If, if all you had was the Bible, would you come to the conclusion after reading this that to become a Christian you would pray a prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart? And I know I am totally stepping on some toes right now. I'm just asking, is that really what you would find in here? Or if you only had the Bible, would you come out thinking, you know, I need to repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, what would you believe if it were just the Bible? And again, I am not saying that we shouldn't listen to people because there are some amazing teachers in our world and God's gifted some people to be teachers. I'm just saying that biblically we're taught that we should test everything we hear and see if it's really in this book. It's a pretty incredible statement. It shook up a lot of people. Hey guys, that's the challenge for all of us. Whatever our background is, are we willing to take our beliefs and our practice and say, 
you know what? I'm not just going to embrace this because I grew up this way. I want to actually read the Bible. If I just read the Bible and was trying to figure out what it taught, if I read the Bible and tried to go, what were the big deals in Scripture? This what convicted me. A lot of the big deals in Scripture were things we didn't talk about in the church I grew up in and some really little bitty deals we talked about a lot that the Bible didn't even mention. There's something wrong with that. But this morning, guys, we're returning to not just our roots as a movement, but our roots in Scripture that says, here's two big deals. If you're going to do anything, make sure you do baptism. Make sure you do the Lord's Supper. Today, if you have never been baptized and you believe Jesus is the Son of God, that's the only question you're going to be asked. That's the prerequisite. You say, well, I need to go get my life together. Guys, baptism, you need to be baptized because you don't have your life together, right? If you believe he's the Son of God and you're willing to turn from your life of sin and selfishness to him, then you're ready to be baptized. And yeah, it's, it's a beautiful symbolism that points back to the cross, but it's also an effective moment where the Bible says some wondrous things happen in your life. Your sins are washed away. The Holy Spirit comes in you. You're a new person. So today, right here on the spot, if you need to be baptized, we can do that. Or if today your life has wandered from the things of first importance and you've gotten so entangled with the things of secondary importance and so confused by them that you've forgotten to love God and love people, which Jesus says is number one and number two, then maybe we could pray for you today. If you have a need, we can pray for Why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?